lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. So, so let's talk about this concept of charitable gift annuities. What, what is a charitable gift annuity? Well, basically, it is what the picture on the screen says. You have a donor who makes a gift. That gift could be cash, could be a check, it could be property, such as stocks, bonds, whatever. And in exchange for that gift, the charity then gives lifetime payments to the donor or somebody else that the donor has named as the annuitant. And so each year or each quarter, or it could be even each month, how, however frequently the charity wishes to distribute the checks, the, uh, the uh, charity gives that uh, in exchange for the gift. Now, unlike other trust arrangements that we'll look at later in the year, uh, this is actually a bargain sale. This is the uh, donor making a gift and getting something back. So when we looked at bargain sale rules before, all those bargain sale rules apply to charitable gift annuities because it's actually a, a bargain sale. It's a trade. Whereas before we were looking at bargain sales where uh, the, uh, the donor would, uh, uh, would give a piece of property, uh, say real estate worth a million dollars, and get back only 500000 from the charity, this is the donor giving a gift, say of cash or of stocks, and getting back an annuity that is worth less than that uh, gift of cash or stock. So it's a bargain sale. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this charitable gift annuity concept. You can think about it in these terms. Uh, we have a donor who in 2010 makes a gift of some sort, property or cash, to a charity. From that point on, every year, that donor receives a check every year until the donor's death. Uh, that's the basic concept of a gift annuity. Uh, that's the idea of, uh, of how it works. And we can do a little bit of complicating factors with it, but truth of the matter is, there's a limit to how clever and creative we can get with gift annuities because they're, they're very specific. Uh, when we look later at trust, that everybody creates their own trust and there's individual rules, you can do lots of different special things with it. Gift annuities are pretty well restricted by statute as to how they're set up and how they function. So some examples. Example donor ages and rates. Uh, this would show you the, uh, the percentage of the initial gift that a donor could get uh, after uh, making uh, for the rest of his or her life after making the, uh, the initial uh, gift. Now, what are these things uh, up here? Th these are suggested rates from the American Council on Gift Annuities. It is possible for charities to uh, increase those rates slightly. It is possible for charities to decrease those rates sli slightly. This is just a suggested rate. However, um, well over 90% of charities that have charitable gift annuities follow these rates. Those rates are intended uh, to uh, provide enough of a gift at the end so that the charity at the end of the donor's life will on average have 50% of the initial amount. Okay. Uh, so that was the, the concept, uh, the, the rough approximation of that 
of that idea. But this gives you an idea. So it's one of the reasons you might see here uh, that these tend to be popular with older ages uh, because the, uh, uh, the amount being paid back goes up. No surprise there. We don't expect people to live quite as long. And so uh, consequently, we're uh, happy to pay a, a happier rate there. Um, okay, so for, for example, if we take one of the rates, an example transaction, if you have a donor who's age 55, uh, and notice these suggested rates, they don't have gender attached to them, uh, which of course is a significant factor, but the uh, American Council on Gift Annuities uh, feels like it's more important to uh, be able to just publish simple rates for people. Uh, obviously, if you're a male doing this, you're making a larger gift, uh, statistically speaking, uh, than, a, than a female because you're not going to live as long. Um, but that's the, the typical way that charities uh, do the rates, although they certainly could choose to do them by gender, but they almost never do. So let's say we have a donor age 55, gives $100,000 in stock, uh, and the charity pays $5,000 per year for life. And that's following these same rates here, 55, we've got a 5% rate here. So that's a, a basic example of how a gift annuity works. Transactions we have and the pieces we have going each way. Um, the, as I mentioned, these American Council on Gift Annuity rates, the suggested rates, their intent is to leave about half of the initial gift for the charity at death. Now keep in mind, this does not mean that the donor is making a gift of half of the uh, value of the, uh, of the item that he gives. Okay? This means that after the, uh, after the life expectancy of the donor, half of the initial gift, of course, is the time value of money. So what we're saying is that if the donor purchases a gift annuity for $100,000, at the end of his life, the charity will have $50,000. Not $50,000 uh, inflation adjusted, not $50,000 2010 purchasing power, just $50,000. Okay. So it's not, uh, it's, it's half of the original dollar amount at the end of the process. So, so uh, that sometimes is confusing to people when they say the rates are designed to get half. Well, they're designed to get half if you wait for the in person's entire life. Now, in contrast, the IRS says in order to have a charitable gift annuity that's deductible, you have to have a, a present value gift of a minimum uh, of, of, of more than 10%. In other words, if I make a gift of $100,000 to buy a gift annuity, that gift annuity better be worth less than $90,000. Because if I take $100,000 and I go and I buy a, uh, and I do a charitable gift annuity and the charity gives me a gift annuity that's worth $95,000, the IRS is going to say, this is not a charitable transaction. Uh, we're not going to let you duck, deduct. This is not a valid gift annuity. Now, just to kind of keep in mind, it is occasionally possible for a gift to meet this goal, the idea that you're going to have half at the end of life expectancy, but still not meet this goal. In other words, if you have a very young person, uh, it doesn't take much to be able to have 50% of his initial gift at the end of his life. Okay? That doesn't take very much because you, know, you take 10%, somebody that's expected to live 40 years, 
uh, or 45 more years, um, it doesn't take 10% to, 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 uh, to get to this level. So just kind of keep in mind, those two things are two very different things. Generally, if you use the suggested rates, it's going to have this, uh, this factor, but it's this feature, but it's not guaranteed. You always have to make sure that the gift uh, works out to be at least 10%, that the gift portion has to be at least 10% of the present value. Okay, so what else do we know about gift annuities? Well, actually not a whole lot. So a lot of these are estimates. Uh, this, uh, most of these come from uh, Brian Klontz, who does a lot of work in uh, CGAs. Um, and so just from, uh, from being in the field, we... He's my former partner. Oh, is that right? Okay. So um, uh, he is... Uh, uh, spends, actually, what, what he does, uh, most of his work involves working with charities who have been, had these charitable gift annuity programs and they've been doing them wrong and they wind up upside down in them where they wind up with more liabilities than they have assets and then the issue is, okay, how do we fix it? Uh, so so these, are, um, uh, these are some things to keep in mind. Now, we don't have hard numbers on this like we do for charitable remainder trusts uh, that, we, uh, that we looked at at the beginning of the semester. And the reason is this. A charitable remainder trust is a separate tax payer. It has to file every year, so the IRS knows exactly how much is in those things. This is just a transaction between a charity and a donor, and, uh, and the charity doesn't have to report separately, hey, these are our gift annuities and, and how much they are, but approximately $15 billion. So there's a significant amount of charitable activity taking place here. The average annuitant is age 78, so that's where these things get very popular. People in their 70s want to make a large gift, but they're worried that they're going to run out of money, and so they get nervous about making the large gift. This allows them to do both. The average duration is 14 years. That means time until the person dies. That's the average time it takes for one of these to turn around. The average size is relatively small compared to the other uh, planning techniques we'll see. The average size is about $60,000. Minimum size is about $5,000 to $10,000. Now, keep in mind that, that that's relatively small, certainly as compared to charitable remainder trusts, as compared to private foundations. These don't have to be massive gifts because if you think about, well, on average I'm getting $60,000 and how much of that is a charitable portion? Well, maybe 15%, uh, you know, so maybe uh, 20%. So you're talking you know, $10,000 gift component of it. So this is uh, the minimum size depends on the organization. Typical minimum sizes are five to ten thousand. You can get some organizations that'll say no, we want twenty-five before we'll do it. There's even a few organizations such as the uh, uh, American Bible Society that'll do do them for a thousand uh, a piece. Um, they uh, actually have a massive volume of these, and so they. Uh, um, they uh, do them for a very small amount. Uh, some divisions of the Salvation Army will also do $1,000 charitable gift annuities. Um, so these can be relatively small. On the other hand, uh, there are gift annuities that are uh, 5 10 $15 million gift annuities. Those do exist as well, and we'll talk about why that, that might be the, the, the case. Uh, it turns out these are becoming more popular as a planned giving device uh, than they were a few years ago and we'll, we'll look at why here in, in just a moment. Okay, so that's how it works. Why in the world do we want these? When would you have a, a client or a um, fundraising prospect uh, who would want to use these sort of things? When does the need for a gift annuity 
come up. Well, this is the primary uh, target for gift annuities. You have somebody who wants to make a large gift out of their assets, but they're afraid that they're going to outlive their assets and be left with no income. Okay? It's somebody who wants to make that gift, and they say, oh, I'd really like to make a large gift to your organization, but you know what happens if I live another 20 years? And I could be left penniless because you know I gave away all my I gave away too much of my assets. I consumed the rest of it. I'm left with nothing. So this is kind of a way to do a trade-off, where you can make your big gift, but you can have that guarantee from the charitable organization that you will continue to have income regardless of how long you live. Okay. So that's the primary motivation behind having a, uh, a charitable gift annuity. Charitable gift annuity deals with that problem. The lifetime income prevents the donor from giving too much in the sense of, I gave too much away, now I don't have, uh, it turns out I live longer than I expected, I've used up all my assets, now I'm penniless, and so that gift was perhaps unwise. Uh, that's what this uh, charitable gift annuity helps to, uh, helps to solve, helps to deal with that problem. Uh, what, what other reasons uh, might a person want to use a charitable gift annuity? Well, one, if you have somebody who, let's say there is a, uh, a, a, an item of value, um, an investment, a, a cash amount, and they're already going to leave it to the charity when they die. You say, look, when I die, this dollar amount, it's going to the charity. Right? Already done, already signed. If a donor has already decided that's what he or she wants to have happen to the property, then a charitable gift annuity actually just kind of adds benefits onto that. The charitable gift annuity says, well, why don't you take an immediate tax deduction for part of that, because you do get a tax deduction for the gift part of it, uh, and you get some income uh, in the meantime. Uh, since you want it to go to the charity anyway, you go ahead and do this now, commit to it now, get some benefits now. So the basic idea is that if it's going to go to the charity at death anyway, the charitable gift annuity adds a current deduction for part of it and adds some income uh, in, the, in the meantime. Okay. Uh, okay, here's some reasons why charitable gift annuities are becoming more and more popular. Suppose you have a donor who says, I want to make a gift and I want income back, but... I want income that won't change and won't run out. The other more advanced, more complex charitable giving techniques that we will uh, look at in more detail cannot do that. Okay? Charitable remainder trusts and pooled income funds, pooled income funds are, are rare, but charitable remainder unit trusts, those have uh, income that depends upon how well the asset does. The asset does well, your income goes up. The asset doesn't do well, your income goes down. Okay? Some people don't want that. Charitable remainder annuity trust, it's a flat payment. It's always the same. But guess what? That charitable remainder annuity trust, that flat payment, it's based upon the assets that you put in there in the beginning. If you put assets in a charitable remainder annuity trust, invest them in Enron, and the assets go away, your annuity pays out the same amount until it doesn't. So you can have a crat, charitable remainder annuity trust, you can have it exhaust because you invested in the wrong thing, it runs out, it pays the annuity as long as it can, and then it quits. 
So you can have that risk, uh, and more and more people have hit that now with what the market has done over the last few years of that income just runs out, just quits. Okay? And that is a big uh, consideration as to why charitable gift annuities are becoming more popular even with very large level donations because it's an income that won't change and it won't run out regardless of what the, the, the market does. Uh, the payment is a fixed obligation of the charity regardless of market events. So as long as you have that payment coming from a charity that's stable, it doesn't matter what the market does. It doesn't matter uh, because the obligation comes not from the amount that you originally put in, like with the charitable remainder trust, uh, or uh, the, the, the amount you get back depends upon how that particular investment does. It is a general obligation of the entire charitable organization. So that makes it a little bit different. This is one of the reasons that charitable gift annuities have become more popular recently. It's because of market volatility. Uh, before the uh, market started its uh, relatively recent cycle of uh, collapsing every once in a while, um, charitable uh, gift annuities were seen primarily as a, a low dollar arrangement um, because there are some tax advantages to uh, charitable remainder trust that you can't get with charitable gift annuities. However, uh, these are now becoming popular even with large dollar amounts because of this trade-off. Look, if I take this uh, $5 million and I put it in a charitable remainder uh, unit trust or charitable remainder annuity trust, if I invest it wrong, then I've got this risk. I've got this risk that I'm going to run out of money or that the payments are going to get less and less. If, on the other hand, I get a charitable gift annuity from a substantial charity, Let's say I get one from Yale University or you know, some other large organization uh, that I've done some investigation of. I'm comfortable with the uh, idea that they are not going to go bankrupt. Uh, then um, probably the uh, chances of my... This is uh, NASDAQ, by the way, um, back in uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. So that's what that chart is. The chances that my portfolio is going to do that are probably greater than the chances that Yale University is going to close up shop and declare bankruptcy. Okay, so so that's the and, and you know and you can get a gift annuity from Yale University, especially if you really you know love the organization that sort of thing. So that's why these have become more popular. Even though later we'll find out that you can get more tax advantages in some circumstances with charitable remainder unit trust. Okay, um, what else would you use a charitable gift annuity? Well, let's say you, you, you just want to keep it simple. I want a simple way to give a relatively small amount and still get an income, uh, uh, still get an income tax deduction and still get some income back from my gift. Charitable gift annuities are, are the way to do it. Charitable gift annuities are simple and they are cheap. There are no donor costs for setup. There are no donor costs for administration. It usually only takes five or $10,000 to start one of these. As I mentioned, there's a few organizations that even kind of go nuts with that. You could do them for less. It's really easy. It's really simple. You can't really get too complicated with them. On the other hand, charitable remainder trusts that we'll spend more time with, they are extraordinarily flexible, but they're also quite expensive. Set them up, you know, four grand could be more. You might get one uh, uh, cheaper, getting down to two grand, but it's expensive. You could get a more expensive going up to 10 grand. 
Annual administration, figure at least a grand there, could be more. What's administration? Well, you know, you've got actually a separate taxpaying entity here. You've got to file taxes every year. You've got to, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, management of the uh, assets within uh, the, uh, the charitable remainder trust. Got, we've got to do that. In general, you know, I'd say as a minimum, you're looking at fifty dollars to $100,000. Now, that's just sort of practical. You theoretically could set one up with $100, but it doesn't make much sense, right? Whereas, you know, you're talking at least a tenfold difference over the minimum of uh, what's feasible to set up for a charitable gift annuity. So I like the example here of the charitable gift annuity is like the number two pencil. It's simple, it's cheap, it only does one thing, you know what it does, right? The charitable remainder trust is like this, you know, painter's palette. You can do all sorts of individual beautiful things if you have a lot of talent to do it, but it's really kind of complicated. It's very flexible, but it's kind of expensive. Uh, and it's not as, uh, it's got a lot more options, but there is a, there's a trade-off to that as well. Um, okay, why else might you want to use a charitable gift annuity? Suppose you have somebody that says, I want to make a gift, and I want to get income back, but I actually want to see the impact of my gift while I'm alive. I, I, I want the charity to use my gift and show me what it did with my gift while I'm still alive. Is that possible? Well, it is possible. In fact, there are some charities that will immediately use the net gift. That is, they'll figure out on average what is it going to take for us to pay this person this income for the rest of their life, figure that up, calculate the life expectancies and all of that. So how much of it do we have as a gift? Uh, be it 15%, 20%, whatever the case may be, they'll take that 20% as soon as the gift annuity is signed and they'll go spend it. Okay? Now, not all charities do that. It's uh, a less than cautious approach to managing these asset pools, but some do. So you could have a, a, an individual who says, I want to make this charitable commitment. I want to have a current deduction. I want to get lifetime income and I want to see it being used while I'm still alive. Charitable gift annuity, it is theoretically possible to do that, and there are a number of nonprofits that will go ahead and take the actuarial value of their gift, their net gift, um, up front and use it immediately. So it is possible. That's something that is not possible, uh, that is often not possible with other kinds of, uh, uh, of setups or structures. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why people might use one. What are the risks of a charitable gift annuity for the donor? Well, primary risk is pretty straightforward. The income payments are a general obligation of the charity. So what's that mean? Well, it means you have a risk. And that risk is, if the charity dies, there's a risk that the donor payments might cease. In other words, the charity is going to go into bankruptcy court. There's going to be a whole bunch of creditors lined up. The, uh, the uh, charitable... Uh, annuitants the, the, uh, uh, f from the charitable gift annuities will be one of those creditors and there's been there's not sort of a bright line as to uh, as to whether or not they're first in line or if they're just general creditors or they get preferred it's kind of gone both ways but there's a risk that if the charity goes under is in bankruptcy that you may not be getting 100 cents on the dollar uh, out of that uh, out of that charity so <clears throat> Is there just not been enough cases of, of charities with gift annuities that have gone bankrupt? 
Yeah, there's just not that many. There hasn't been a whole lot of cases. Um, you know, in general, it, here, here's the reason. In most cases, they're just an unsecured creditor, okay? But courts are less desirous of leaving uh, widows without income than they are of, you know, kind of uh, uh, leaving out some other general creditor who's just in business and it's a risk of doing business. So even though there isn't a technical preference um, there, you know, you wouldn't, they're just a general creditor. But there is this sort of desire to help certain, uh, certain groups, and so sometimes they'll come up for, with the reason, say, well, in this particular case, because of this circumstance, we're going to do this. Okay. So that's, that's where it makes it a little bit flexible, a little bit fuzzy. Okay, so I spent some time this afternoon to put this together, and this was to give you an idea of the regulation of charitable gift annuities uh, across the country. The dark blue is states where if you are a charitable organization, period, you can begin issuing charitable gift annuities tomorrow, period. There's no regulation, no reserve requirements. Uh, you could start a new nonprofit tomorrow and begin issuing charitable gift annuities the next day. There is no minimum size of organization. There's no minimum age of an organization. That's the dark blue. That's the completely unregulated. Okay? The light blue states are states that do not require, do not require, a, um, th that do not require any uh, sort of reserve, uh, uh, you know, set a, setting aside an amount for charitable gift annuities, but they do at least require that the nonprofit organization has been uh, in business, in operation for a minimum number of years, and at least has some cash around. Okay, so the most common requirement is um, uh, there are six states that require, or thirteen states that require the nonprofit organization must have been in operation for three years and have at least three hundred thousand dollars of cash. Okay, so just that basically saying we want to know that you are of some substance before you issue those. Uh, and I believe that would be what Texas is, three years and 300,000. Some of them require three years and 100,000. There's two states that require three years only, don't require any minimum cash around. Two states that require five years only. Um, South Dakota requires 10 years and half a million dollars in cash. Illinois requires 20 years of operation and $2 million uh, in, in cash. Those light blue states basically say you have to have been operating for a while as a nonprofit and you've got to have some money around, 100000 300000 maybe more. Okay? But beyond that, there's no reserve requirements. Okay? What, what does that mean? What it means is that technically you could have a charitable organization that goes out and says, okay, here's the gift annuity. We're going to do the, buy the gift annuity tables and... Um, a uh, person makes a $100,000 gift annuity, you could have a charitable organization that says, thanks so much for that $100,000 gift annuity, takes that $100,000, spends it on payroll the next day. Okay? And just says, well, you know, we'll keep going. The future, future administrations will figure out how to make sure we keep paying these people. Okay? It's completely uh, no reserve requirements whatsoever. Okay? Uh, and that's the uh, dark or light blue. Uh, which is, um, at this point, 
at least geographically, is kind of a majority approach. Uh, and then you have these uh, orangish states that do have a reserve requirement. Those are states that say, if you're going to have a charitable gift annuity, you need to actually have set aside in a separate account an amount that's sufficient to cover the obligations that you've said you're going to meet. Okay, So uh, somewhat of a reasonable standard. And then the, I don't know if you can distinguish the colors, but these bright red states like New York, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Washington, Florida, New Jersey, they require a reserve that is sufficient to meet the obligations that you have committed yourself to, plus give us like a 10% or a 15% buffer on top of that. Okay. So it is, uh, it is interesting how, uh, how, how these things uh, uh, function, and one of the reasons that, um, that Brian stays in business is because it is so easy to get into these things uh, and they're not using sophisticated models a lot of times. As a matter of fact, a lot of times they're using models that it takes you about 30 seconds to explain why that's not going to work, um, and then they wind up in trouble um, because they're not insurance companies, uh, and oftentimes you know they're they're uh, they're they're relatively small, and they can get into uh, get into problems with these uh, with these issues. Um, you mean in terms of what should a charity do? Well, which, which one do you think should be required? Do you think they shouldn't have restrictions so that more charities can use them? Or do you think it should be required yeah, reserve? Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, as sort of a general knee-jerk reaction, I'm all big free market guy. And so, you know, I'm... The, the problem here is that I think that in this case, I think that the reserve requirement is a better rule not only for the donor, obviously. I think it's a better rule for the charity. Because I think there are charities that if you don't force them, when that gift comes in, to set aside something because they're so committed to what they're doing and it's so important and right now is really important and these, you know, sometimes they're emotional people. That's why they're doing the work they're doing in, in some areas. Um, if you don't force them to set that aside, they're going to get themselves into more trouble than they would have if you made them set it aside. So, so I actually think that it's probably better to just go ahead and say, look, if you tell these people you're going to do this, then you need to set aside the money that actuarial will, actuarially will allow you to do it. And sort of take away the temptation to just blow the whole thing right now and the next guy is going to work it out. One of the reasons is because there's sort of this, um, this agency problem. Uh, th that being that the person representing the organization and even the interest of the organization itself can diverge. Uh, so if you are running a nonprofit, let's say, well, okay, let's say it's a, something simple like a college, a small college, okay, and uh, you want to, you know, you want to be successful uh, and you're CEO uh, and so you want to build buildings, that's one of the sort of markers of success, you want to grow, you want to do these things, um, there's a temptation to borrow money uh, beyond the interest of the organization as a CEO to build things while you're there. Because you know you're only going to be there about five to seven years, right? 
and then if everything gets really tough and sad for the next guy, well, they'll still love you and remember how great it was when you were around. Okay? This is sort of the, the, the nature of these things. Uh, and so there's a temptation to get organizations in more debt. And this is essentially could be a form of debt, of saying, okay, we'll take your big annuity, and I'm going to spend it all now, but we're left with the debt, the, the requirement to, to spend this out. Uh, and so because of that agency problem, I think it's better to make some restrictions and say, no, no, if you've made this obligation, you've got to set aside the money because they have the money to start with. So it's not like you're making them come up with something they didn't have. That's part of gift annuity. You've got this big pile of money. So I think it's probably, probably better to be regulated. But um, this is what it is. So this is, you know, and this is so weird in the law because if you were to do a commercial annuity, you almost couldn't find a more heavily regulated area to, to operate in. I mean, you know, life insurance is extraordinarily, if you want to become a life insurance company and, and offer these, these uh, commercial annuities, I mean, massive amount of, of regulation. You know, Lawyers Full Employment Act, essentially. I mean, it's just, and then you have, oh, but if you're a charity, how about nothing, you know? How about just make it up? We don't care, right? Yeah, so, so the question was, well, what, what if I'm here in Kansas that has no rules, but I've got a donor in Arkansas? Uh, the general rule is you've got to follow the, the, uh, the uh, law of the state where your donor is, as well as your own state. Okay? So uh, sort of whichever one is more, is more restrictive. So that does limit you that uh, you know, now obviously some bigger states, like if you're in, uh, if you're in Texas, very large state, and then Oklahoma, New Mexico, can't, you know, none of these are, are going to be a problem. But if you get a donor who's a resident of Arkansas, um, then you've either got to say no or you've got to follow the rules that Arkansas has. Uh, and, and in fact, in California, what they have set up, this, I find this interesting. California, which does have a reserve uh, requirement, they set it up and they say, you have to have reserves for all annuities you issue to California residents, okay? And you have this separate, uh, this separate California resident pool of money. We don't care what you do with people that don't live in our state, right? Even if you're a California nonprofit, you don't, not worried about it, right? We care about if you're issuing these to residents of California, then you must have this reserve requirement. But if you want to have you know, if you want to spend it all for somebody out of, you know, Kansas, that's not what they're worried about. But that is, a, that is the general concept that uh, you have to be careful where your donors are coming from because you do have to follow the rules of the state that they're in. Okay. So, very uh, heavily unregulated area. Okay, uh, so let's suppose you have that situation. You have somebody you're advising who says, I think I'm going to do one of these gift annuities. Maybe they want to do it for a fairly significant amount. How do you know if this charity is a, if this is a risky gamble or not a risky gamble? Um, uh, especially if you're in a state like Texas that you know, doesn't require the reserve requirements, that sort of thing. Well, it turns out that charitable organizations uh, have to, of, of any size, have to report most of their operations uh, on publicly available documents called IRS Form 990s. These Form 990s will show the charity's financial health. Um, so I thought I'd take a minute and just show you 
uh, how if you are interested in basically any charity, that's not a church, churches don't have to report, but any charity that you have interest in and you want to find out about what are they doing financially, you can go to this website, and there's other places that have them, but this website, guidestar.org, free registration. Uh, and so let me show you what that looks like. So um, you go to, this is what the homepage would look like. So you go to this organization, guidestar.org, and uh, you can do the, the free registration to be able to get the 990s, and you can pick any organization. Anybody have any nonprofits they have any interest in? Boys and Girls Club of America. Okay. Now, so Boys and Girls Club. Now, I can tell you this could be a little tricky because there are, uh, you know, probably a thousand of them uh, that are uh, locally uh, operated and would have, um, what's, American. So that's probably wrong. Let's see, that's Canyon Boys and Girls Club. Okay, let's do this. Let's do... Okay, let me let me start out with the right search term, maybe. Boys and Girls Club of America. Let's see. Let's try that. In Atlanta. Okay. Uh, and so let's find who's in Georgia. I'm in Georgia. Narrow that a little bit. Um, Okay, that looks good. Boys and Girls Club of America. That looks like the original group there. So you click on that, and uh, you can find out some general information. But what we want is called documents. So we'll click on that, and there's the 990s. Now, they don't have their latest, which would be 2009. Uh, but you click on that, 2008 Form 990, uh, and it will pull down this tax form. Now, I'll give you a little bit of history of this Form 990. Uh, starting with the 2009s, which this is going to be a 2008, uh, these forms expanded dramatically. Uh, so even a small organization now, it's like a 30, 30 40 page uh, form to fill out. Uh, so there's a fair amount of information, although a lot of the new stuff that's on there is just check the box. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? That sort of thing. But you can find out uh, essentially their financial health, their circumstances. Uh, and some other kind of interesting things. Uh, okay, so we've got the return here, uh, and this is one of the older ones, which actually makes it a little bit easier to, uh, to read. Um, so let me go down here, and I'm going to blow this up a little bit. So first, is that big enough there for you to see? Okay, so let's say we want to know how much money did the national organization raise. So line eight is contributions and grants, okay, second from the bottom. And it looks like they raised 128 million in the previous year, and in that year they raised 104 million. Okay, so that's the national organization telling you how much money they raised. Now that went down, um, but then if we look at the time period, uh, it was probably a time period when about everybody was going down. Um, and here it is. It began on January of 2008, ended on December 31st of 2008 wasn't a particularly great year for nonprofits, so we can sort of excuse that that that, that happened. Okay, so that's uh, uh, that's their fundraising. What else might we want to know about them? Um, let's go down here to uh, assets, liabilities, net assets. Okay, and so uh, blow this up a little bit so you can see it. 
on the screen. Okay, so we've got assets, liabilities, net assets, right? And so beginning of the year, their assets, 392 million, liabilities, 35 million, net worth of about 357 million. Uh, end of the year, they took a hit. Uh, that went down. Uh, so that looks, looks like their assets went down, um, not quite 90 million. Uh, liabilities went down a little bit. Uh, and so their, uh, their net worth went down uh, somewhat. Okay. So their net assets or net worth. So, okay, so this is just kind of a straightforward uh, concept of uh, let's get some, some basic ideas here uh, about the uh, organization. Um, what other kinds of things does it have in it? Um, uh, let's see, this is the somewhat expanded form, but not as expanded as it is now. Uh, uh, this will tell you their officers and directors, are any of them being paid? Um, and here what we get into is, okay, here's some people that are being paid who are officers and directors. Uh, so we've got some names of some of the top people and how much are they making. It looks like Roxanne Spillett, I'm guessing she is the CEO, is making uh, about $600,000 a year. Uh, and so that might be of interest to you if you're checking out a charitable organization. Uh, and these are some of the other salaries. Looks like 388 is the next most highly compensated person. So that, that says a little bit about uh, their compensation can be in there. Um, hmm? Okay, so what's this? This is just an imaginary number. What it is is in the column of how many hours a week do these people work for the organization. So you just sort of make some stuff up and say, oh, that CEO works 70 hours a, a, a week uh, to earn her $600,000 a year. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's, and where's their money come from? Membership dues, um, fundraising events, government grants, other contributions. Looks like $50 million in contributions, $7 million from events, $6 million from membership dues, $40 million uh, where they're processing grants from the government. Um, Non-cash contributions, uh, another $7 million there. So they do take property gifts. Um, and uh, this particular, as you can see, this particular report is 126 pages long. Uh, and so this is for a large national organization. And even for a large national organization, that's actually fairly, uh, fairly involved. Uh, you can see, for example, uh, what they spent on oh, salaries and wages, for whatever that's uh, of interest to you, fees for services, how much they spent on professional fundraising, uh, about $50,000 here, advertising and promotion, office expenses, $5.5 million, all that sort of thing. So, so this is... These are the forms that, that could be uh, in there. Let's see if there's anybody interested in Texas Tech? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's take a look at some of these. Um, this is, that's this is a little bit Christian University of Oklahoma. Okay, Texas Tech Foundation. Now, this is separate from some of the other groups, um, so this would not include, for example, the Law School Foundation, which is its own organization. Um, and, and actually, different universities set this up differently because, like uh, a number of universities, um, will have a separate organization that's just the athletic association um, that takes uh, that takes uh, money uh, for the athletic association. Um, Texas Tech runs every runs that through the the uh, the foundation, which is the main uh, organization. Okay, so let me blow this up a little bit. 
And this is also one of the older ones, so we'll have to take a look at one of the newer ones as well. They, they don't have their most recent one posted. So let's see, uh, for example, let's get to pull this up. Uh, the uh, deficit, net assets, other changes. Net okay, so uh, bottom line, what did they do for this particular year and what were their net assets at the end of the year? Uh, and it looks like uh, in this particular year, they went up by 63 million, which is a good year. Uh, net, net assets uh, went up to a total of 437 million um, at the end of the year. So they started out at the beginning of the year just under 400 million, ended the year. Uh, just over 437 million. You know, so you take a look at that and you say, okay, well, that's an organization that's probably going to be around for a little while. Um, and so, if I got an annuity from them, I, I'd feel feel pretty comfortable about that. Uh, how much money do they raise? Let's go up here to total revenue, um, program services. Well, this is just the foundation, so they're not having. Pro but um, uh, oh, this is what they're spending. They spent 25 million on program services. Okay, so let's go up here to revenue. Let's start out with, okay, here we go. Contributions, gifts, grants, and that's the top line here. Looks like 84 million, one direct public support. 84 million, so that's what they took in in that particular year, uh, was, uh, was 84 million dollars, which probably helped them to have a good year. Sorry, I'm kind of moving back and forth. I want to blow this up big enough. Uh, and I didn't want to print out like 16 copies of these 40-page documents. So uh, interest on savings, uh, line four, they got $13 million or about $14 million in interest uh, on, their, uh, on their savings for that, that year. Um, it, one other thing I do want to mention about this that you need to know that if you're used to sort of looking at organization that's, that's different about nonprofit organizations, let me show you something that's different about nonprofit organizations. Um, okay, this is the same cash. Where do they have it? How much? Uh, what are their assets? Um, oh, this is interesting because we, we talked about this just the other day. Notice one of their assets here is line 48A is pledges receivable, 51 million. Remember we talked about the idea that you know you can say I'm going to make a gift. The charity books it as an asset even before it comes. These are not completed gifts, but they are an asset of the charity. So $51 million is these pledges receivable. It is a current asset of the charity. Um, and then here they have less allowance for doubtful accounts because they don't expect everybody's going to pay all of them. But those are already booked. Uh, those are already an asset because you could, uh, uh, you could technically uh, force, the, uh, force the payment of that. Um, okay, but that's not what I want to look at. What I want to look at is this. Okay. Now, this is what's different about charities. These three lines. Unrestricted, temporarily restricted, and permanently restricted. Now, what's that mean? Unrestricted is normal. You do whatever you want with it. You can pay salaries with it. You can build a building with it. You can do whatever you want with it. Permanently restricted is when a donor says... I'm giving you $10 million, and you can use the interest from that for scholarships. Okay? If the $10 million is permanently restricted, I want a permanent scholarship, um, then you cannot choose to take that money and spend it 
uh, for building a building or doing something other than what the donor said. Why? Because if a donor puts a restriction and you violate the restriction, the donor then has the legal right to say, mm, give it back. Okay. And so consequently, you can't, you, know, you can't do that. Now, I want to show you an example of why this is such a big deal in charitable organizations. Now, remember that top line is unrestricted. Temporarily restricted, what's that mean? That means uh, I'm going to give $10 million towards the expansion of the football stadium. That means you can't use it, but eventually when you start building the football stadium, then it will become unrestricted and you can use it for that. Permanently restricted is the restriction never goes away. You don't, you don't get to use it. Uh, okay, so you take a look at the foundation and notice this. Okay, So, oh my goodness, they have so much wealth, they could just do all kinds of... Th well, actually, what they could do something with is $5.6 million. The rest of it is all donor-restricted. They can only do what the donor said they could do with it. That's the concept of an endowment. If you get a president in who says, let's spend it all now. Well, you can spend $5.6 million of it all now. The uh, 319 plus the 68, no, that's all restricted. The donors have said what it's going to be used for, and you have to use it for that, and you can't use it for anything else. So this is where you could get an organization that has a lot of assets, has a lot of net worth, but then at the end of the day, they don't have much flexibility. You know, they don't have much wiggle room if they've got a debt to pay because it doesn't come out of this unless you're actually going to bankruptcy and all that sort of thing. Why doesn't it come out of this? It doesn't come out of there because if you take it out of there, donor has a right to say, give it back. You violated the restriction. And so that's why you can't take it out of there. So uh, um, then the donor's heirs can say, give it back to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, permanent restrictions are permanent. So they, you can inherit the cause of action because if you've inherited, you know, that, that, the, whoever inherited those rights, uh, those property rights, they're retained interests actually uh, that we allow because we say, yeah, that's a retained interest as long as you're saying you must use it for this particular charitable activity. But if they violate it, you can get it back. So that 319, where is most of it? I mean, what are most of the restrictions that are associated with that? Is it scholarships? Is it? Yeah, scholarships, professorships, named endowments. It's basically people that give that say, I want a permanent scholarship. Like all these, when you walk along the, uh, the hallway here, all those things in the wall, those are all going to be this. Okay. Those are all going to be um, restricted or temporarily, you know, maybe it's a 20-year scholarship, whatever. Every, every time somebody sets one of these things up, says, I want to set up this scholarship fund and it's permanent, it's, it's this kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of a difference between sometimes, you know, in the media you'll see, well, look, this foundation has half a billion dollars. Why don't they just, well, yes, they do have half a billion and they have discretion with 5.6 million of that half a billion. So it's a little bit so what different. If go, what if they are facing bankruptcy? What if you see a charity like this and they are facing bankruptcy? Well, okay, so in the event of, uh, uh, again, I mean, uh, so, so what would you do? Now, if you get into bankruptcy, um, then you've got the issue of, uh, okay, it's, it's basically the argument as to, is this a secured or an unsecured creditor? In other words, uh, 
I gave you money to use for scholarships, um, which you stopped doing because you went bankrupt. So I want my money back, which I have a right to ask for. But then I become a creditor along with the other creditors, you know, that, that sort of thing. I mean, so technically, I could go ahead and violate all these agreements and spend it on other stuff. It then generates a liability for me to pay back to any donors that request it. Um, because I've because I violated those things, and you know, so it's this. That's sort of the trade-off there. That that's that's what it's for. Okay. All right. Well, if you are a church or claim to be a church, don't have to file a form 990. You don't have to file to become a nonprofit organization for federal tax law. But if you violated one of the rules. When you're audited, the IRS comes in and they don't just say, you're no longer a church. They say, you never were a church. And anybody who deducted a contribution to you for the last three years, we're going to now audit because they've underpaid their taxes. Okay. So it is not necessarily that free ride because if you violate the rules, if you're not really a church or you violate the rules, you can lose your tax exemption retroactively. As, as, a, uh, as a church. So that's sort of the, the catch-up provision there. Now, October 15th, how close are we to October 15th? Okay, so next Friday is actually a big uh, deadline for the 990s because what the IRS has said, small organizations sometimes don't fill these things out. They don't get around to them. The IRS has said, if you have not filled one of these out for three consecutive years, we are revoking your tax-exempt status. They've been saying this for a long time, and so they're like, okay, we're going to give you a little extra time, a little extra time. October 15th is the deadline. If a nonprofit organization, it's not a church because churches don't have to file, if they haven't filled these out in the last three years, uh, they will lose their tax-exempt status on October 16th. Um, that's the end of all the grace periods and all that sort of thing. So the, the IRS is getting a little bit tougher. Now what that means, of course, is that if somebody deducts a contribution, um, that's not a valid deduction because that's no longer recognized um, 501c3 uh, or other uh, charitable organization. So moving forward, do they have to fill it out every year? Yeah. Yeah, it's every year. But it, it, the requirement is every year, and what the IRS says is, if you hadn't filled them out three years in a row, we're going to revoke your tax exempt status. That was sort of the new thing. And then they gave a grace period to October 15th. How do you become a 501c3? So how you become a 501c3 is you have to just basically file a form with the IRS um, that, um, that tells what your organization do, does or is going to do and the people involved with it, all that sort of thing. And it takes some time and it's, uh, you usually have to go through somebody who knows what they're doing and so you may have some legal costs and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, you, you could, uh, it's a pretty simple process. You could Google it. There are organizations, firms that just do these things, uh, do lots of these different things. These 990s have really expanded in size over the last few years. One of the reasons, um, there, there's a few reasons for it. Um, there was a, the, the first big change came after September 11th. What happened after September 11th in the, in the IRS division, I remember this because people working in nonprofit um, law, I mean, you, 
you would wait forever to get your uh, 501c3 uh, uh, request back, you know, to form new organizations. They, it wasn't just like a day or two. I mean, months and months and months. Because everybody that they could pull in the exempt organization division in the IRS all went to anti-terrorism stuff. Why? Well, because some of the money was being funneled through uh, um, uh, nonprofit organizations to go to you know, nefarious organizations. And so they all focused on that. Well, that really kicked off this whole sort of uh, era of the IRS wanting more information from nonprofits, which led to an expanded 990 and once again expanded even further 990. And so that's just kind of gotten into, there's lots of things that they now ask questions about that there's not necessarily any consequence to. Uh, and in fact, there are things now, which is kind of crazy on the 990, that they ask questions about that there's not even any federal regulations that say you have to have any of this. But they ask the question to, like for example, there's a question there about do you have a formally written conflict of interest policy with your board of directors, right? And you check yes or you check no. Well, guess what? There's no federal regulation that requires any of that. But it's the idea that Oh, it's reporting the federal government. I, we better get one of those things. And so it does have that effect. It's just sort of like, you know, law that doesn't exist, but people think it exists. And so, you know, sort of like those little signs, not responsible for accidents. Well, if somebody looks up and goes, oh, they're not responsible for accidents. I guess I can't sue them. And they walk off, and then it worked, you know. I mean, it's what people think it is. All right. So um, I was just going to show you. This is actually a college that, that did close. This was about right before they closed. What did one of these look like? Um, let's see, their total liabilities were growing. Um, their total assets, uh, well, I kind of know this particular, and there was probably some, some funny things going on there. Um, but you could take a look at, if you had somebody who's going to do one of these with a the smaller organization, you could, for example, take a look at a few years of these, see what their contributions are doing, see what their assets and liabilities are doing. Um, you, you know, you could take a look at it. Um, some other ones that might be uh, of any entertainment value for you, this is local, Lubbock Christian University. That's probably was just for a smaller organization. University of Oklahoma Foundation, they're, they took a huge hit there. Wow, look at that. Let me blow that up a little bit. This was during when you know some funds were taking hits. So their net assets in one year went from nine hundred sixteen billion to six hundred million to six hundred sixty nine million. Oklahoma? Yes, University of Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. Let me see. Harvard normally was. They just there's just Texas A and M. Um, let's see. Their net assets. About a billion, but it went down during that year, so it came in under a billion. Although, see, this is a thing. Like, okay, um, this is this is Texas A&M, and you'd say, okay, so Texas A&M is about a billion. Texas Tech is a little under half a billion, but there's a lot of different organizations for Texas A&M. So they have like I don't know if I pulled it up here, but they've got like a separate. All their athletic stuff is separate. They've got research foundations that are separate. Yeah, I don't have it pulled up here. Um, so it's actually the money's in a lot of different places in there. Texas Tech seems to kind of keep it all together in, in one place. Um, but anyway, so it's just something for you to 
what is it? Which one is this one? So, something. Oh yeah, this is the Boys and Girls Club. To to keep in mind that if you ever have a if you ever have somebody who's thinking about doing a charitable gift annuity, or if you're thinking about doing a charitable gift annuity, if it's a nonprofit organization that's not a church, um, you can look them up, and you can at least give some reasonable counsel to yourself or others about, you know, how, how what sort of risk level are we at? Because if somebody's taking out a, a charitable gift annuity from Yale University, um, I would consider that a very low risk level. Um, universities. Uh, historically, actually, are more stable than governments, so you know, pr pretty safe uh, there. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if you're doing it, you know, like somebody, okay, let's say somebody says, okay, I'm taking out a charitable gift annuity of Lubbock Christian University. Well, that's one you're going to want to look at, right? This local here, and you say, okay, net assets, 42 million, 36, uh, they dropped. Turns out they dropped because they separated out the Christian school. But of course, as with any financial statement, what was my, uh, my advice uh, earlier, one of my two sort of financial rules to live by, uh, profit is opinion, cash is reality. So you always want to come down and find out where is the, a where is the actual money held. Uh, and so you want to know, let's blow this up a little bit. So you want to know how much is in, uh, how much is in cash stuff, uh, how much of this is like pledges? How much of this accounts receivable? And especially for these kinds of organizations, how much of it is just in their land, right? So here they're saying we've got $58 million worth of land, $22 million of depreciation, so we're claiming the land is $36 million. Well, think about that because, okay, how much of that could they actually sell off and, and still be operating? You know, how much is that? You know, that, that could make a difference um, as to where they have the assets, as to how viable the organization is. But uh, just to kind of keep in mind, it's not just assets and liabilities, it's where are they held. Are they real money like cash, or is it pretend money like, uh, well, the campus is worth so much, even though, you know, who would want to buy this campus? I don't know, but, you know, that kind of thing. All right, so we're back to charitable gift annuities. All right, so you can look at the IRS 990s to find out some idea of the charity's financial health. Right. Um, okay, uh, another disadvantage, uh, these are payments for life. These are not for term of years. You cannot do a charitable gift annuity for a term of years. It's only for life. So what's the big deal? Well, of course, the big deal is that there is the downside risk that all of us have, which is you could um, inconveniently die. And all of those payments that you uh, might be, uh, that you might be um, uh, getting, you don't get. So there is a risk. You could live a long time. Now, the interesting thing is, is that um, the uh, uh, rates that the American Council on Gift Annuities uses, um, they have what's called a two-year setback on life expectancy because the actual donor pools live two years longer than their, um, than their uh, predicted uh, uh, average. Now, why would that be? Why would people who do charitable gift annuities live two years longer on average, which is a, which is a pretty big amount, uh, than, than they ought to? Well, it's an opt-in pool, right? So the whole tail end of people that are sick and don't think they're going to live that long, how many of them are going to be taking out gift annuities? None. So if you have this sort of average distribution, and this left-hand side pool of people that know they're not going to make it very long, none, none of them participate. 
your average isn't going to be the normal average here in the middle. It's actually one of the reasons why we can do things that are tax advantageous to clients when we're setting up charitable remainder trusts or uh, different kinds of charitable, uh, charitable trusts because our clients live longer than they're supposed to on average. The reason they live longer than they're supposed to on average is because the average includes sick people who know they're going to die and those people don't set these things up. So that's why on average they, they live longer. Plus, oh yeah, these are also people who have disposable wealth, uh, disposable income, uh, and generally more wealth than, than others. Um, and as it turns out, um, wealth is, uh, uh, is, a, is a predictor for um, longevity. So it is uh, easier to die if you're poor. All right, what other kinds of charitable gift annuities are there? Oh, by the way, that's one of the reasons why those, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why some of the predictions for this huge transfer of wealth to charities are so overstated, one of the reasons is because people who have that much wealth take a really long time to die because, you know, you have sort of unlimited medical care and they live longer and so the transfer takes longer. Okay, so that was the basic vanilla charitable gift annuity. You can do uh, some, uh, some limited different things with it. So let's look at what other, thing, other kinds of gift annuities there are. You can have a gift annuity for two lives. You can say, I want to receive this income as long as, uh, for example, I or my spouse are alive. So you have the couple that takes it out. They get a $5,000 check every year. One of our CG people dies right here on the screen giving you emotion and drama in your lecture. Uh, the remaining person continues to get the entire check. Okay, that's a two-life annuity, charitable gift annuity for two lives. Uh, those are a different set of rate schedules, and it's based upon the younger age and the older age, uh, and, uh, and this, these are the suggested rates from the American Council on Gift Annuity Annuities. Uh, and as you can see, if you're adding a second person, then uh, you're going to get a lower rate, but the older that second person is, then the less of an impact they will make on the, uh, on, on the rate. Do you know how that com the rate schedule compares to a, a immediate duty bought in the rate? So in general, these things are about... Um, let me think. What is the best way to put this? Um, if you buy a charitable gift annuity... It's going to cost a, a, a. It's going to cost you about, say, thirty percent more, a third more, something like that, based on these rates. Um, Twenty percent, thirty percent depends on. They, they don't match up perfectly well, but um, because essentially that's what you're doing. It's, it's a bargain sale. Give me this money, I'll give you an annuity. Um, because we don't take into account the financial stability of the organization issuing the annuity, all the annuities have the same value. Uh, we value them based upon life expectancy using the IRS tables. So, so basically, uh, you're paying about 30% more than you would have to, to get a commercial annuity. Uh, here's another, this is a recent uh, thing that has become quite popular. Uh, that there's private letter ruling on and, and that was positive and so a number of organizations are using this now. This is called a deferred gift annuity. And the idea is, okay, so you start out, you give a gift, you get an immediate annuity. But what you can do is to say, don't start it yet. 
um, I'm going to defer this for another year. And each year that you delay starting that gift annuity, it gets a little bigger. In other words, the remaining checks that you'll get for the rest of your life once you start gets bigger. Uh, now, this has become popular in particular in retirement planning. The idea of, well, go ahead and set up a gift annuity now uh, and just defer it until you decide to retire. And then once you retire, then you can go ahead and start, start taking the checks. Uh, so so this, has, uh, this has become popular. Um, the suggestion from ACGA is to increase it by about 4.5%. Uh, compound annual increase the remaining payment size uh, for each year that a person delays it um, to, uh, to, to see how much bigger that the payment becomes. Um, and, and here's another way that people sometimes use this. Let's suppose you have somebody who says, I want to make a million dollar gift. I'm a little worried that something might happen with my other investments that I may wind up being really sad that I made that million dollar gift. I may need it for income. But I don't want to set up a gift annuity because I don't want income right now. I may not never want income. I really just want to give this million dollars to the charitable organization. But I want some security. I want to feel like if everything goes wrong, I will not be left destitute because I made this dumb gift and then something else happened with my other investments. So the concept here is to say, okay, why don't you do this then? Do one of these deferred gift annuities and just keep deferring it. Okay? What happens if that person just keeps deferring it until they die? The entire gift has transferred. What happens if the person keeps deferring it and then all of their other investments crash, their business goes out, they have no money, they can then say, okay, I, I want the income now. They can then turn that on. The, uh, the advantage of that is because this hasn't started yet, this potential income doesn't count as income to them. See, if that person started taking the gift annuity and every year they took the check and then they just you know, wrote it back, gave it back to the charity, that's income and a deduction, which may not be as valuable as just having no income to start with, depending upon what they're doing with itemizing and, and how close they are to the, to the limit as well. So this is sort of another way. It's a way to say, I want to make the big transfer, but I, I, I want to be safe. I want to keep a backup. Um, so you get some of it now, but I, I want to keep a backup. So that can be done as well. How do you treat the reserve requirement on something like this? Does that decrease over time as long as they keep deferring it? It turns out the reserve requirement wouldn't change on this, and that's why there's no income or gift taking place each year. See, the key to this is that this decision to defer is not a gift to the organization because you're saying I'm going to defer, but in exchange the remaining payments grow. And so it's, uh, it's actually, because if you didn't have that, you would have to have essentially declaration of income which you gave back, which is not what we want because that can be problematic. Okay. So... Uh, essentially, it, the reserve requirement stays the same because they, they're a year closer to death, as we all will be next year, uh, it, but their rights to get the, uh, uh, get the uh, check, that, that check is larger. Okay. I mean, this is a fun class. You get to talk about death and taxes. I mean, just, you just can't get more fun than that. 
Another thing that the reason why these can be popular for charitable organizations is that the donor could choose to say, um, you know what, I don't need this income. It was great when we set it up, but you all just take it and, and just, you know, just, just use it now. You sort of have a natural uh, fundraising opportunity for people that are receiving these funds um, that maybe they find that they don't need them and of course then the charity could just use all the rest of it immediately. Uh, you can choose to give up all of your rights to future payments. You can choose to donate the rest if you've gone through this process and find that you know it turns out some other things have gone really well. I don't really need this income so you all can just uh, stop, stop paying me. Uh, and so that is a, uh, a uh, appeal that, that charities can make. Yeah, I believe so. Let me think through if there's any problems with that. Yeah, no, I think that would, that would be fine. Yeah, I think that would be uh, fine to, to deduct that. But what else can you do? You, you can name a different person. It doesn't have to be the donor who's the annuitant. Now, we'll, we'll look later that there can be some uh, gift tax uh, uh, issues with this. But you can uh, name somebody else as the annuitant. And it turns out that if this is an immediate annuity, if it starts immediately, um, this counts as a present interest gift. So uh, for those of you that are familiar with gift tax concepts, it means that uh, it, it can uh, be counted under the present interest exclusion. So uh, you may not have any gift tax consequences of, of significance um, for, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, so that is also possible. You do not, the donor does not have to be the annuitant. Uh, now here is just to see sort of the, the outer limits of how crazy you can get, which is not very crazy because these are fairly restricted. Um, this is uh, one uh, university uh, got a uh, private letter ruling to support this, and they were selling these as, uh, as tuition uh, payment plans or tuition savings accounts. So basically the idea was you go to a donor, the donor names a grandchild as the life annuitant. But the first payment does not start until age 18. Well, as I mentioned, charitable gift annuities are not for term certain. They have to be for life. Okay? But what they said was, we're going to issue this, and, but we'll give an, them an option where they can assign it, that is sell it back to the university when it starts at age 18, for a lump sum tuition payment, or say a four-year tuition payment, or something like that. Uh, and, and at this point, and again, it's just a private letter ruling, at this point the IRS says, well, um, this doesn't violate the rule because they could sell it to anybody. They could go, because you're making this, this uh, gift annuity uh, right freely transferable, they could sell it to anybody. The fact that they happen to sell it for the, to the university for a lump sum tuition payment doesn't violate that it was set up as a lifetime payment. So, okay, so they are allowing that. Um, so there it is. That, that's about the outer limits of how kind of crazy you can get with gift annuities, um, which is, again, it's the pencil, not the paint palette. Okay, so, so how do financial advisors get involved with gift annuities? Well, let me suggest a couple of different directions, a couple of different ways. One direction is this. You have nonprofit organizations that sort of, in order to keep up with the competition and to do the things that their donors want them to do, wind up becoming a life insurance company. Okay, it's 
issuing lifetime annuities, right? This is kind of a complicated thing. Uh, and so they might need some help in how do we match up this money that we have with the outflow that we're going to have. And they, they might need to have somebody who understands a concept like duration or, or uh, laddering when it comes to uh, fixed income or uh, you know, how you can make these assets match up. Okay? So one uh, connection is nonprofit organizations who need help in managing these, these pools. Uh, and of course the, the, the work that your uh, colleague does is usually when they realize they're, they've messed up and they need help. Um, selling commercial annuities is reinsurance. Yeah, does that too. Um, that's one of the ways you can try to limit the risk. Uh, what, what, is, what is that all about? Well, well look, let's go back here. Uh, so this is the concept of an annuity, right? The charity could say, I don't want to be in the annuity. I don't want to be in the life insurance business, right? The charity could just say, okay, uh, you want a lifetime income. I'm going to take your money and I'm going to go buy you a lifetime income from a highly rated insurance company. They'll pay me that income. I'll send you that check on through and then I don't have to worry about this. I can take the rest of it, take it right out front. I can use the percentage that's a gift percentage from day one, and I don't have to worry about, are you going to die tomorrow? I hope you don't live forever because you're going to kill us if you live forever. I don't have to deal with any of that. I can just say, live as long as you want to. You know, I bought New York Life reinsurance on this thing. It doesn't matter to us. We've perfectly matched up our obligations with our income by buying a, an annuity contract. Okay. So you can have this connection with financial advisors who um, work with nonprofits. Because let's say you have a moderate-sized nonprofit, and you say, "Hey, nonprofit, um, wouldn't you like to offer these things like your competitors are offering?" Nonprofit says, "Not really. I don't know anything about running an asset pool and and life expectancies and all that sort of thing." Say, "Well, how about don't worry about any of that. How about you just..." You know, it's a bargain sale. Just treat it like a bargain sale. And uh, if somebody wants a gift annuity, give them a gift annuity and then turn around and use most of that money to buy a contract that gives you that income coming in from the insurance company so that you don't have to worry about how long they live and then immediately take the difference and use it for your organization. The advantage, especially for, for moderate size organizations, is they don't have to worry about waiting 40 years. Because okay? they get to use their share right now. And they don't have to worry about managing money in the interim because they bought a, a commercial annuity policy that's going to, uh, that's going to uh, copy that exactly. Okay? So that's another sort of avenue for financial advisors to get involved with gift annuities. And then there's this idea of just giving general advice to current clients or a nonprofit's donors. And this is, I think, uh, a potentially helpful way if you have a financial advisor who's trying to, who wants to meet the right people in the right places. If you are involved with uh, some nonprofits, and let's say you develop expertise, which you're in the process of doing, in charitable planning. If you have a good relationship to start out with, I don't know too many CEOs of nonprofits that would be offended if you said, I'd like to make a short presentation on planned giving opportunities uh, at your next 
donor event, at your next board meeting, uh, just to kind of let people know what's, what, what is an option here. The idea is you get in front of people having an area of expertise, uh, showing them that you know what you're talking about, the kind of people that you want to be meeting to help build, it, build your practice. Okay? And if you put together one of these presentations that is successful and makes the people really happy, then you can go to the next nonprofit and say, hey, we did this for the other nonprofit. Why don't you call their CEO, ask, him, ask her how she enjoyed it, and, uh, and, and we're happy to do this at your next board meeting. You know, takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however much time it is, and we'll run through some of the things like we're talking about in this class, some of the different options, A, B, C, get you in front of the people that you want to start building relationships with. I think that's a possibility. I think that's, a, that's an area of, of practice development, of developing that expertise. Not that you may n not directly make money on that charitable gift annuity transaction, although certainly you can by selling the uh, reinsurance on the annuity, but that it can get you in front of the, in front of the right people. Okay, so let's end with the excesses. The uh, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Um, this was, and you know, if you have an unregulated area, you're going to have abuse. If you have a regulated area, then you'll have extreme abuse. The uh, charitable gift annuities uh, are exempt from securities regulations, right? Uh, there is a special code provision that they are exempt, so you don't have to worry about all the laws that are related to that. However, we do know, because specifically in the statute, that if sales commissions are paid, that exemption goes away. That means uh, you are going to be selling a security and you are going to be regulated as if you are selling a security, which is a whole different world from that little map of the United States that I showed you where there are no rules, right? Um, this case, uh, and this is the link to the case, uh, is unfortunate because um, it was, it, it's one of those where you get a case where the, the circumstances are so extreme that sometimes the court says things that relate more to how extreme this situation is and then it freaks everybody else out. This was actually a pure, you know, Madoff type Ponzi scheme that was done with charitable gift annuities, all right? And part of the issue came up in the, uh, you know, bankruptcy, who gets the money, uh, was the issue of whether or not these could be considered investments or not came up. And one of the arguments that the court made in finding that they were securities and they were investments is that the fact that these were marketed primarily as investments. They were not marketed as a way to give. They were marketed as uh, let's compare our yields or our returns with, with certificates of deposit and other investments, and they were marketed primarily as an investment. And so the court in that case said, these are securities, these are investments, because that's how they're marketed. Now, it's got everybody else sort of very nervous about using terms like yields or returns or phrases like guaranteed um, because of this case. Um, was that National Heritage or something like that? Uh, Mid-America Foundation. It was the name of it. Um, and, and I think it's useful to point out because sometimes you do have fundraisers that will do this inappropriately using terms like yields or returns and comparing with CDs. Because if we go back to this, like, um, let me go back to one of the rate tables. If you show this like rate and you go, well, look, 
you know, here we can give you 7%. And what are you getting of your CD? We're not giving you 7%. That's your own money we're giving back to you, right? Okay? And, and as soon as you, you know, that's the concept of an annuity. Isn't, you, this, isn't, this isn't like your interest on a CD because you still have the CD and the interest. Here, we're just giving your money back to you uh, for a while. And if you live long enough, then we'll give you some more. So it's a different concept. Okay. So um, at this point, nonprofits need to be a little leery of coming out strong on the finance side, need to emphasize, and it's good to keep in mind, um, these, this is a way to make a gift. This is not a way to make a killing, unless, it is, uh, unless you're actually operating the Ponzi scheme.